everybody. Um, my name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here at Discovery. It's good to see you. And every time we have a gathering, I have this like nervous energy on Sunday morning. You know, what's going to happen? Who's going to be there? How's this going to go? Am I going to say something dumb? Like all that kind of stuff, right? This morning, though, is a little, a little bit different for me because my daughter is four games into her first big softball tournament, and they're playing right now, and it's like the equivalent of the bottom of the ninth inning, and I don't know how it's going to end, but i got to preach. So <laughs> anyway, pray for me uh, because this is, a whole, this is like a whole different kind of energy and nervousness than, uh, than normal. So anyway, that's what's been going on in our life this weekend. Uh, my voice is a little bit shot from all of the cheering uh, that I've been doing over the last day, but I am really glad to be here and to get to share with you guys this morning from the book of Ephesians. So we continue on in this conversation called Exiles. You can meet me in Ephesians chapter 2. And as you're looking that up, I want to begin with this question. Do you believe that you were born with a purpose? Do you believe that you were born with a purpose? Studies show that people who have a sense of purpose tend to suffer less from depression, tend to enjoy their lives more, or in the words of Viktor Frankl, and this is someone who lived through the Holocaust, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Those who have a why to live can bear with almost any So again, today we are in Ephesians chapter 2. Last week we wrapped up chapter 1. And the first chapter in this letter is so rich, right? The the big ideas, the uh, uh, the immense truths that Paul is, is expressing in just the first chapter about who we are. Just a quick reminder of some of the things that he says about us. We are holy, faithful. Blessed, chosen, blameless, adopted, lavished with grace, unified with Jesus, elected, included, marked in him. We are God's possession. We are loved. That's just chapter one. Paul is, again, the the author of this letter. He is a character that we know well from our time in the book of Acts over the last year. He's writing this from jail, and he's writing to his friends. This church at Ephesus, which is a city in modern-day Turkey, this, this group of people was very precious to him. And he wants them, again, to know these incredible truths about themselves, but not just about themselves. He is writing so that they may know him, him here being God, that they may know God better. Paul desperately wants them to know who they are and who God is. Who they are and who God is. He wants them to know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. To know love that surpasses knowledge so that they may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Again, it, it, the sentence is kind of funny, but it just gets to like how desperately Paul wants them to know this. To know the love that surpasses knowledge, to be filled beyond the measure of fullness. 
Like whatever that means, the, the, the full expression and experience of God's love for us, that's what Paul wants us to know. Now we're calling this conversation exiles, not because the Ephesians themselves were literal exiles, but because they were cultural exiles. They were living in a moment and in a place where the cultural conditions made following Jesus difficult, whether it was the dominance of Greek and Roman politics, whether it was the religion of Artemis, whether it was the pursuit of economic gain in this, in, in this city that was a major point of trade and commerce, whether, whatever of those things it might have been for people living in Ephesus, all of this was competing for their allegiances. Pulling on their hearts, pulling them in a, in a different direction. Just as for us, things like affluence, achievement, apathy, we could add, of course, to that list, on and on. These things that distract and disrupt us in our pursuit of knowing God, of the fullness of the experience of knowing that we are loved by God. Exiles need to be reminded, whether we're talking about Ephesus or the church in Davis, this is who you are, this is who God is, and today, this is why it matters. All right, so here we are, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, this is not an encouraging opening, right? <laughs> but here Paul lays out very clearly the problem. Okay, the problem. Human rebellion and sin resulting in death. Now, sin is a thing that, that culturally speaking, we don't like to talk about. It's like the most obvious of the Christian doctrines. I mean, do you do everything right? If somebody said yes, I, let's meet afterwards. I'd like to talk about that. No, of course not. I don't, I don't do everything right. In fact, I mess up all the time. I think we live with this deep awareness of our sin, this propensity in each one of us to mess stuff up. I think our issue with sin and talking about it is not that we're in denial about it. I mean, I'm sure some of us are, of course. We have blind spots. But I actually think that, that we live with a deep awareness of our sin, our brokenness, all of the ways that we mess up, and, and we don't like that about us, and so we don't want to talk about it. We don't want it to be brought out into the light. right? We, it's almost like uh, too much awareness of it. The thing is, though, it's, it's there and there's no escaping it. I think we've done a good thing as a culture in identifying shame as a negative force, right? And so sometimes when we talk about sin, it can feel shaming. But the reality is, is it's there. There's no hiding from it. And the things that we do try to hide from can often have a very uh, detrimental effect on us. They can, in fact, kill us, right? And so there's something actually, I think, about, ah, oh, this is who I am. Right? Being open about it, being, being honest about the ways that we mess things up. Nothing, at least for me, reveals my propensity to mess stuff up quite like my interactions with my kids. Okay? I can be having a great day. 
I can be doing all kinds of wonderful things, serving people. I'm such a great pastor. What a, what a good guy I am. And I go home and, and like immediately, the, either one of them will point something out that's like an obvious, you know, hypocritical issue. Like, Dad, you said not to do that and you just did it. So then it's like, okay. Right? You have these little accountability partners that are always there. Or, or they'll say something that sets me off, and then next thing I know, I've said something dumb, and I've hurt someone's feelings, and we are not in right relationship anymore. And, and that, to me, is one of the best working definitions of sin, breaking right relationship. We've inherited definitions of sin as rule-breaking, and there's an element of that that is true. But the deeper reality here is that sin is relational, because God is relationship. God exists as Trinity, three in oneness, three persons in one being, this perfect community of self-giving, sacrificial love. And God has chosen to relate to us personally as beings created in his image. And so what Paul is naming here in verses 1 through 3 is less about all the ways that we break the rules and a lot more about our violation of our relationship with God. Our propensity to mess things up by pursuing other relationships above our relationship with God. Now, look at verse 4. But, there's a big but here. Okay, it's family Sunday. We can make some silly jokes. But, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace. He's going to say this two times. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So, verses 1 through 3 is the problem. Verses 4 through 9 is the good news. God has taken the initiative to heal our broken relationship. Why? Because of his great love. Because of his great love, because of his rich mercy. How? And that's such an interesting word to me. But Paul uses it several times in this letter. Uh, 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 Tozer has this, has this great line of what we think about God is the most important thing that we think about. And, and how often do we think of God as kind? Like we might think of God as loving, we might think of God as gracious, we might think of God as angry. We have all these different things, but how often do we think of God as kind? That is, at least to me, that is deeply, deeply encouraging to know that our God is kind towards us. Death to life. This is the story of the good news of Jesus. Now there is a catch here, and the catch is this. The catch is that this, the way that this happens is not by works, but by faith, Paul says, so that no one can boast. Now, in our classic American way, we turn this incredible truth, this incredible truth into an argument. 
all right? And we use it to vet people and to try to decide, you know, are you the- as theologically pure as I am? And we get into grace versus works and faith versus works and all these theological gymnastics. And, and it's just like, whoa, what? pause. We have missed the point. We, we've missed the deep truth here, which is that God has taken the initiative. God has done it for us. And it's just, it's just a gift, right? It's just given to us. For achievers and earners and approval seekers like you and me, we get hung up here. But I want us to just pause for a moment and just like sit with that, bask in that truth. The good news is that this transformation from death to life is a gift. It's a gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's just given to us. Think about the best gifts that you've been given. When I graduated from high school, my grandparents bought me a Martin guitar. This is not the actual guitar, but it's very, very similar to it, and I just really love this picture. And look at that awesome room full of guitars. So that's why I wanted to share that with you. But they bought me this Martin guitar when I was 18 years old. It was my dream guitar, and, and I still have it to this day. I love that thing so much. One of the best gifts I've ever been given. And yet, and yet it can't, like, there's an attachment there, right? It, it's attached to my graduation. And it wasn't the kind of thing of like, well, you better graduate or else you won't get this guitar. But, but there's, that, there's that, like, thing there, right, where it's like, oh, I got this amazing thing, but it's, it's, it's because I you know, reach this big milestone in my life. And, and that's good. I mean, it's good to have those milestone moments and to celebrate them and to give gifts and those things. I'm not saying anything about that. All I'm trying to point out here is even the best gifts that we get and receive from people, often it's for some reason, right? And, and yet the most important truth in the universe <laughs> that God has done the work to restore relationship between us is totally There's nothing attached to it. It is totally free. That is amazing grace. Again, nothing earned, nothing deserved. All we can do is receive it. Now, here's how Paul ends this this part of the letter. Verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, three parts to this that I want us to see. First of all, we are God's handiwork. God's craftsmanship. God is an artist. God is an artisan. We're not mass-produced and created in a particular way for a particular purpose with great intention and care. You are God's handiwork. Second, we are created to do good works. Created to do good. In this word good, we should hear echoes of creation. Genesis 1 and 2. It was good, it was good, it was good. And when God creates human beings, it was very good. 
Okay, echoes of shalom. This is the Old Testament idea of goodness, wholeness, peace, unity, everything the way that it was intended to be. You were created for good. <clears throat> Many of us struggle with these thoughts in our head, this inner critic, this monologue. You suck. You don't do anything right. You're going to mess it up. They're all going to laugh at you. Whatever it, whatever it is, right? These tapes, these messages that play. Those are lies. Those are lies. No, 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 no. You were created to do good. You were created to do good. This is a quick parenting tip right here. Speak this into your kids every day. You were created to do good. Right? When they are going through something, when they're struggling with something, no, you you were created to do good. And then the last piece, prepared in advance. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? This mystery of election. Remember, we are elected for mission. Prepared in advance, no accidents. You are here for a reason. You are here with a purpose. And it is to do good. It is to do good in this world. Now, the obvious application here is go sign up for Surf Sunday, <laughs> right? Next week, what we are going to do is all about this, right? It's all about doing good collectively as a community. The whole idea behind Surf Sunday is really built on this part of the letter. Absolutely, the church should gather to worship, <clears throat> to grow in relationship, to take communion together, to glorify God, all of those things. Of course, of course, of course. But the church was also created to do good. And that's what next Sunday is all about. An opportunity for us to do good together. So again, if you, ha uh, you can sign up for that by going to our webpage, discoverydavis.org. There should be a link in the app if you have that on one of your devices. Um, if you are not in our, currently on our email list, that will go out this week. You can sign up for that. Lots of practical ways to get involved there, but go for it. Next Sunday, we will do good together. Now that's the obvious application here. But I feel like we'd be missing something if we didn't dig, dig into that just a little bit deeper for a moment. We were created to do good, and yet we are bombarded constantly by reminders of all the ways that we do the opposite of good. All of the ways that we sin individually and collectively. All of the ways that we participate in what we might call anti-shalom, right? If shalom is the way that God created the world to be, then anti-shalom is all the ways that we push against that. We experience this, as I, I, I've mentioned already, on a personal level. Our own awareness of the ways that we blow it and, and all the things that we do wrong by our own people. Those negative thoughts, that inner critic, all of our shortcomings, right? But we also experience this collectively. Whether it's this Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial, anti-shalom. Okay, it's, it's a little bit of a joke right now, but there's, like a, there's a serious truth behind that, right? War in Ukraine, anti-shalom. Some of the, the kind of me-first responses to COVID, anti-shalom. Shooting up grocery stores and churches, anti-shalom. This 
is sin. And what I see a lot of people do, what I see a lot of Christians do, is throw up their hands and say, well, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That is a verse in the Bible, and there's a truth to it. But to me, that is representative of a passive and inadequate theology. A passive and inadequate understanding of of what evil is in our world and what sin does and, and our response to it. And I think that it, it demonstrates a deep mistrust of the God that Paul wants us to know in this letter, which is why we need to understand verses 1 through 10 in light of what comes next. Now, we're going to look more at this in, in a couple of weeks when we get back together uh, on June 5th. But just a little preview of where Paul goes next. Look at verse 15 here in chapter 2. His purpose, God's purpose, which is what he's been talking about, right, in verses 1 through 10. His purpose was to create in himself, in Christ, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So part of what Jesus does is restore individuals to relationship with God, but part of what Jesus does in his death and resurrection is reconcile people. He makes it possible for us to be in right relationship with God, but also with each other. Okay, healing of broken relationships in multiple directions. This is the heart of the gospel. Now what Paul is talking about here, when he says a new humanity, he's talking about the church. He's not talking about some, something that's going to happen, I don't know, a thousand, two thousand years from now or whatever. He's talking about right now, you know, for those folks in Ephesus, he's also talking about us here in Davis, California in 2022. He's talking about the church in all of its diversity. All the different ways that we can kind of name diversity of people and relationships. He's talking about that, but he is specifically talking about race and ethnicity. The multi-ethnic church is not a model. It's not a flavor of church. It is what the church is supposed to be. It's always what the church has, has been intended to be. It is the good work for which we were created. It is the good work for which we were created. And it is what we will enjoy forever in heaven. Every nation, tongue, and tribe worshiping Jesus together. Now, over the last couple of years... Uh, we have done some things, said some things, leaned into some conversations here at Discovery that are difficult or controversial or whatever word you want to put on it. And what's been really interesting to me is that the one that's gotten the most pushback, and quite frankly, if I'm being honest, the one that people have left over, it is our desire to talk about this openly and publicly. We've obviously lived through a pandemic and had different kind of postures towards that. But the thing that people have provided the most pushback on is our commitment to talk openly about race and ethnicity. And, and this is, I'm not like uh, throwing shade at anybody who's here right now, okay? Just to be clear about that. In that, I have been called too political, too 
woke to, this is my favorite one, to Davis. <laughs> As if talking about race and ethnicity is like only a Davis thing. Which, by the way, is not, okay? It, it's not. I've lived other places. <laughs> my favorite critique is this one. Just teach the Bible, Steve. Just teach the Bible. Stop talking about these issues and just teach the Bible. And to which I, I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's, it's all over the Bible. It is all over the Bible. If you, if you really want to talk seriously and honestly about Scripture, we're going to talk seriously and honestly about race and ethnicity, about broken relationships, about how those relationships are healed because it is all over the story of Scripture and it is at the heart of this letter because this is one of the churches, one of the first churches that really had to deal with the practical everyday reality of Jew and Gentile being together in church for the first time. Right? Talk about weird and awkward and uncomfortable. They, they knew what that was all about. Racism is not a hot topic. It, it is a discipleship issue. It, it is a discipleship issue because it is a human issue. And because it is a sin issue. And so we need to be able to have these kinds of conversations if we are going to be an expression of the church that, it, that is honest about the world that we live in and what it means to follow God in this place at this time. It's also, I think, a spiritual issue in the sense that it is a force in our world that is undermining God's mission to bring unity to all things. Remember chapter 1, Paul says this is God's mission, bringing unity to all things under Christ. And to me, it's very troubling how under-discipled we are in the church, especially in the dominant culture church for this conversation. And in particular this week, the, the Buffalo shooting has been heavy on me. And the reason for this is because some of the, the reasoning behind that, the, this replacement stuff, I've heard that. I've heard that standing in line at Mishka's to order coffee on my first day of work here, actually. I was like, whoa, not in Oakland anymore. I've heard it in my office. Okay? It, I, I've heard it in, in these places, and it, it just kills me. Yes, there are big demographic shifts happening all over the world and in our country. But I think that rather than fear it, the church should be at the front lines of embracing it because this is where the new humanity is being created. The church is not an escape from the world. It represents a different kingdom, a counterculture, a kingdom that is going to last forever. And the church is where we talk about this stuff. It's where we repent of our sin, where we received the gift of God's grace, and where we do the work together. The work of unity, shalom, right relationship, reconciliation. The work that we were prepared in advance by God to do. You are not here by accident. You are here for a purpose, for a reason. You are here 
as a display of the new humanity. Now, today we're going to uh, close as we always do. We're going to take communion. We're going to sing a couple of songs together. The band, I'll invite you guys to come back and get ready to go. I want to read a couple of verses again from chapter 2 in preparation for communion. And these are our, our words that if you've been in church for a while, you, you've heard before. You've heard them probably many times before. But we have this tendency to internalize these words individually. As this is about Steve, or, or you know, put yourself in, into that place. But these are words that were written for a church, for a community. And I want us to hear them as we get ready for communion, right? Which is this moment, this meal where we remember what God has done for us. That this is a gift. That he is transforming us from death to life because of his grace and his love and his kindness and his rich mercy. We remember and celebrate this together, communally, in communion. And so again, I want us to hear these words, but as best we can to hear them in a fresh way. Not just about us individually, but about us collectively as a church body, as a church community. It is by grace that you, that we have been saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves. It's not because we're so awesome or so clever or so good or whatever. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We, discovery, are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. As we sing these final songs, when you're ready, come to the table. We'll have some people at each of the four stations here around the theater. I believe this one is gluten-free, and then the other three are gluten-full. Uh, so uh, anyway, whenever you're ready, come and take those elements, and then, then when you're ready, take, take an knee. We're not going to do this together at the end the way we did a couple weeks ago. Take those elements, sit with them, remember these words, and that this is about us. You are God's handiwork collectively discovery. When you're ready, take communion with us.